to the Sojourn Church Podcast. We are glad you are here, and thanks for listening. As a church, we exist to exalt and enjoy the supremacy of Jesus Christ in all things, equip the saints, and extend the gospel to all people by reproducing disciples and churches for the glory of God. More information about the life and mission of Sojourn Church can be found at SojournTulsa.org. That's S-O-J-O-U-R-N Tulsa.org. Looking at some background and intro work going into the book of 2 Corinthians, um, we're not going to dive off into it. I plan to just cover the first couple of verses, um, and there's a whole reason for that. Paul has a purpose in those first couple of verses where he extends grace and peace and wants to remind every crowd that he's writing to, um, first of all, just the idea of um, grace is coming your way. The, the, what I'm about to tell you is grace to you, unearned merit. You shouldn't be getting this word from God. You wouldn't deserve this. You deserve wrath, but I'm extending grace to you in God's word. Um, Peace, be reminded, you've been reconciled to God. You now stand in this place uh, of righteousness, clothed, imputed uh, Christ's righteousness instead of wrath. And you have received reconciliation. So peace between God and man. He starts out all those letters that way. And so um, we're going to just try to, instead of covering that, um, after I got to the, towards the end, um, I wanted to go through the, kind of the main thrust of the book. It helps us to step back and get some background information. Um, it's always helpful to um, consider the context and the culture of people. So God had a, had a special intent with a specific group of people in mind. And what I mean by that is um, he, he, this inspired message that we, we know we believe that this is inspired word of God through a human author. And the way that God does that is he has this original audience um, in an immediate setting, and he's speaking to something there. So um, it goes to that big question of where does meaning exist? So if you step back and think through, where does meaning exist? So a songwriter, um, an artist, um, they're, they're, they have an idea in their head and they paint something, they write something, and maybe a, a song, and usually to make something popular, it, it's more popular when you can take 10,000 or maybe a million different meanings from it, right? So the idea with some songs and some forms of art some books is interpretation lies in the reader. Interpretation lies in the one listening to the song. Here's what it means to me. It's different with God's Word because meaning lies in the author's heart. God saying, I know what these people need. I know a thousand days from now what they're going to be facing. Ten thousand days even with all of they, their sin that they bring to the table, everything they've done, I know what their heart needs to get me as their total and ultimate reward. And so the author is in the heart of God, and he uses a human author, a writer, and the Holy Spirit inspires them to write in that way. And so um, we believe that that original audience is very significant because the author has intended a meaning And so what I mean by that is God would be incompetent and definitely not God and weak and horrific as a God if he could not be smart enough to communicate to us what he wanted us to know. Stand up and go through that door. 
Stand up and go through that door. Sankey, here's what I think it means. I think God meant for us to close our eyes and just bask it. No, no. Stand up and go through that door. He wasn't opening it up to your interpretation of that. When he uses more symbolic language, then we have to go through the, the cultural setting, the immediate uh, cultural setting, to find out what God's meaning was, and then to think through, I'm not going to be hardlining on black and white um, aspects of this, objectives, when God has spoken in more poetic or more symbolic language. But when he's writing other letters, he was very clear just saying, here's my specific intent. And so the author's intent, um, the original audience, those are things that we need to consider. And so um, I wanted to spend some time getting to know that. Beyond that, the original audience and the author's intent, well, then you have all the churches in a bigger picture. Does that apply to them? And then all through time, the peoples and the different eras of time, how does God's word have significance to them? So if you read a weird scripture and you feel like, man, that's really, really weird, if you take it just by itself, it can be really weird. But if you take it in the context of the paragraph it's in, in the chapter that it's in, in the bigger context of the whole book, what was the main message of this book? Oh, now that one sentence doesn't seem to be so terrifying or so weird or so like, why would God tell us to do this? Why would God be, oh, oh, hold it. The original audience had some situations going on that he was addressing there. It may not be that that exact single sentence is applied to all peoples of all time. And so we have to think through what that means. Um, so we're going to look at the background, the, the intro of Corinth, and the identity of the people, um, but also um, the motif, kind of the motif through the book and kind of a couple of themes. And then we're going to look at that, that author's intent, the point um, kind of the entire scope of the book. And then I was going to go into the beginning of chapters one, uh, chapter one, uh, verses one and two, but instead we're going to spend more time on just that. That I'm going to use some time there to look at the scope of the book through kind of this this crux where where, where he builds into the uh, book of Second Corinthians. Here's what I'm wanting you to see, and so it's what God wants Paul to get communicated to those people. Here's two questions that every week, um, as I've talked through this before, um, that I, I'd love for you to consider. You can put this in your phone. Um, I think this is what he's dealing with at the heart of the matter in some big general areas, but it's for us to apply and think through. But just two things you can every week kind of think through. How can I be captivated by the Jesus of the cross when I'm obsessed with pride, self-seeking, and comfort? Those are some big things that we're going to see about the people of Corinth. I believe there are some big things that we see in our own lives. How can I be captivated by the Jesus of the cross? And, and I word that specifically because we have lots of different Jesuses in Tulsa. Corinth had lots of different versions of different religious deities, false deities, and even some, some people that were misleading the Corinthians on the true gospel. After Paul had planted the church, some, some people that were inside the church started misleading them. Some other voices were speaking, and they were using spiritual talk and maybe even words of the Bible, and it was misleading people. So we've got to get back to, no, 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 we've got to get focused on the Jesus of the cross. And Paul's identifying with that. So for us, how can I be captivated by the Jesus of the cross 
when I'm obsessed with pride and self-seeking comfort? And the second question, so what implications does that truth have on me loving Christ and making him known to others? If that's true, that I have this tendency to be focused on pride and self-seeking and comfort, what effect is that going to have on me loving God truly with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength and sharing the gospel and this great gospel to others? if that's what I have a tendency of doing. So um, let me pray, and then we'll dive off into this. Father, we're thankful for um, your word as we just spent some time um, reading and uh, um, singing, um, talking about your word, sharing scriptures that mean the most to us. We are thankful for that, and we pray that you would continue to guide us now as we go into the, the intro of this book of 2 Corinthians, that we would be able to glean some wisdom, some practical um, um, wisdom from the book, and that your Holy Spirit would convict our hearts. Would you bring us those gifts of conviction and confession and repentance, um, the, the beautiful gifts of renewal and rest in what Christ has accomplished, and then would you let it lead to greater worship of you, greater rejoicing. We thank you for this time. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, so we just went through the prodigal God series. So some of you learned about um, older brother types and younger brother types, and so um the point was not to switch. So if you realize, man, I'm really an older brother type, the point wasn't, well, now go become a, a, a younger brother type. Or if you're, you have patterns of a younger brother type, the point was not to switch and become more of an older brother type, right? The, the point for both of those, um, and by the way, you're not the father in the story. You're not God, which a lot of people are like, I think I'm the father usually in my family. Um, the point is that you need the father. You have tendencies and sin patterns that we need Christ. And so um, um, you may have people in your group sharing that they felt like I'm the father. I've had that happen in groups. They're like, I'm just the father, really, and with my wife and my kids, and it's, it's wonderful. And so uh, the goal is the father going, it's me. I, I'm the treasure. When you unwrap it all, it's me. I, I, I'm what's in the box. You, you're messed up with loving the little ribbons and the boxes like a little baby playing with a box instead of the toy. You, you've got it all jacked up. I'm the, the joy in the middle of the box. And so um, as we look at that, we're going to see some things about these um, people in Corinth having some of those same tendencies. Um, let me go into a little bit of the background of, of, of Corinth, just as a city, for you to know some things about the city um, and the history of the city, but also the identity of the people. Um, so first of all, and we've got a couple of slides here that um, you'll be able to see. Um, this is where it sits, where, where um, Corinth sits there in Greece. So you see Rome over to the left up there. And so you can see going up to the north, all of you, what would be Europe later on, but then think through all of Asia over to the east, the, the Middle East where you see Israel, Jordan, Lebanon, all those areas that are, are kind of the focal point of the Old Testament. And so now what have we learned through the book of Acts as Jesus dies on the cross and the gospel is going to spread. Remember Acts chapter 1 verse 8, um, that, that, that you're going to receive power and the Holy Spirit's going to go and you're, you're going to be my witnesses. I'm going to be the focal point of your life. It's going to be about me as you take the gospel from Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria as it spreads to those regions um, and then to the uttermost parts of the world. And so then it goes, the gospel begins to go spreading. And so Paul's on these missionary travels to so go on and planting churches. Um, and so you can see Corinth is a beautiful spot. Now here's the deal with Corinth. The city was destroyed by the Romans in 146 B.C., um, they killed almost all the male um, population, and they took the women and children and did some horrible things and made them slaves. Um, and so um, then in 
for about 102, 103 years, um, the city's desolate. So it had been this beautiful city beforehand, not, not as wealthy as it was. And then for 100 years, it's desolate. And then here comes Julius Caesar. And actually the city, um, the name of it uh, was Corinth, the praise of Julius. That's what Corinth means there. Um, so Corinth, the praise of Julius was the, the Roman title for the city. Um, and so you're going to see, um, this is where it sat. And so Corinth sits right there. Um, this is the Mediterranean Sea right down to the southeast of that. And so we know the Mediterranean was a huge part of all the travel and commerce between the Middle East and Egypt. Remember, Egypt's a big player at that time, big power player. And so the world powers, um, America was still three or four years off. And so um, it was a, a huge power center focus for, for, for all kinds of things. And we're going to see a little bit about that. Um, Caesar, uh, Jesus Caesar comes in and he sees not only the sheer beauty of the city, because where it sits, it's just like, it's mountainous, but it's also coastal. Um, it's Mediterranean. Um, some of you may have been there. And so just some beautiful scenery. Um, it's also a city that has a port. And so I have another slide showing a, a modern day picture where it's the, the, it's actually the canal that was, um, created there. So there was the isthmus. So this is current day. This is Corinth right here on the edge closest to us. But now they, there's a whole canal that goes through there. Um, and back then, um, it was still easier for them to land in that port. And they actually did this. They, they lifted boats out and would unload them, or sometimes they had these rafts, they would take boats across to the other side. It was much safer to go that way instead of going to that open sea that was down below um, in the open waters. And so in this little bitty isthmus, they would lift boats out and carry them by on roads to that other side. So now what happens in that? What, what all kinds of trade, what kinds of education, what kinds of commerce, what kinds of new philosophies that are spread in those port cities? You, you remember those Western Civ classes like port cities are important? And so um, those were the things that, that, that attracted them not only to the geography and the beautiful landscape, but, but the, as a port city being a, a powerful place because we know money comes with all of that, right? Money comes with whatever one of those arenas that you want to look at. Um, so it, it's rebuilt, and it become one of the largest, wealthiest city-states in Greece due to its port location. Um, I have some other slides here. Uh, this is the, uh, they're, they're in uh, Corinth at that time. Um, this is the remains of the Temple of Apollo. So all the four deities that were there. And so as you're um, going into Corinth, um, they had many, many different statues and many different um, entire temple set up for different gods. So the, the Greek gods, you read about them, you study them. Well, this was a city that was focused on those things. And so because why? Because if you appease those gods, they treat you well, right? If you appease them, they, they bless your life with things, right? Fits here in Tulsa too. Uh, so a majority of the population was Greek, um, still with a large number of Roman military. I think there was about 14,000 um, Roman military IRs there. So some of Paul's language, even in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, will bring that out. But it's a large, wealthy city-state. Um, it's also a coastal city. Um, and then the next slide, I'll sh you can see, um, this is the view. So from, from atop of this Acropolis, um, there's the view looking out into the, the coastal area. And so, man, just some beautiful things. Um, one of the most 
well known and, and probably throughout the whole region, not just for Corinth, was, was this, the temple of Aphrodite. And so that, and so as you come, if, come into that isthmus, into that sea, and here you see the land, then this huge, huge, that was, that was the um, Acropolis that you would see from the water, this huge mount. And on top of that was um, the temple of Aphrodite. Now, those walls were built hundreds of years later that we see right there, that the temple is destroyed. But on top of that beautiful, huge mount was this temple of Aphrodite. She was the, the goddess of sex. And so um, to, to prosper and to have more and more kids and to, to um, multiply Roman citizens, that, that's what's happening there. Um, so we'll talk more about that later on. But uh, the, the cultural setting, um, as a growing port city, Corinth brought a diversity of attractions, people seeking everything from pagan spiritual renewal to they had lots of body healing. You would go there and they had springs and they would have temples that you'd go to. And if you had any kind of ailments um, that you would um, even uh, go and take little rubs and ointments and all kinds of oils and things, things to drink, things to participate in that would heal your body. Um, as we see um, some of Paul's focus on the body of Christ in this jars of clay, there was either, even a temple, uh, I think it was to Poseidon or um, one, of the, one of the gods that was, um, they had little jars and they had little, and they would fire them in those um, with, uh, with, with extreme heat and they would produce little um, hardened clay figures. Uh, if you had a, a broken arm, an arm that was disfigured, they would have little arms that would, they would hang. So if you came with an ailment and you needed healing in your arm, you could go and fire this clay and, and now hang it with a, from a string at this temple, believing that now you're going to be healed and your arm was going to be healed. So when Paul's saying that the body of Christ, they knew very well of that temple. It'd be like Walmart. And, you, and everyone knows of this temple that has all these strings with all these little body parts hanging. So when he uses that body language, it was just the air they breathe. They understood that. And so he's using very common stock images uh, as the people would be there. And, and he, he's saying in that, you thought this was where you'd find healing. It's not. There's one true God that is going to bring true healing. And so uh, beautiful things that, that Paul uses in the letters. Um, there was a huge diversity of class and ethnicity. Um, Corinth being a Greek city now under Roman rule, being a port city surrounded by other countries and nations, it was very diverse among ethnicities as well as classes. So um, I have a slide here just showing um, just kind of this little um, uh, view of the different categories of living. So if you said, man, there's some big, broad categories, licentious living, those who are just there to, to live it up, to party, to live rebelliously. Also, just prosperous living. It was a city where prosperous living was there. Um, also, those who are just seeking comfort. Just um, that, That's really popular where we're at also. just We just want to seek comfort, uh, comfortable, live, comfortable living. And then also philosophical living. It was an educational force. So when you look at that, the licentious living, there was drunkenness, debauchery. It was a city that was known for that. Um, the city, in fact, um, was, was a city that even the name, they had uh, the word Corinth became synonymous with immorality. And to live like a Corinthian had its own Greek word. Um, I think it was Corinthia Zestai. 
Corinthia zestai, meaning to live in drunken and immoral debauchery. So they had a whole word created like, hey, here's a new word. This is you guys, to live just in a drunken stupor. Um, there was also sexual immorality just rampant. Uh, it was one of one thing that Corinth was most known for because of that, that temple of Aphrodite. And so literally every single evening, a thousand priestesses under the goddess of Aphrodite would lower themselves into the city and go into the marketplaces, go into the city, and they would make their money um, using themselves for the goddess of Aphrodite. And so great moneymaker, also, you get to do those things with those women priestesses. It's a win-win. You get the enjoyment of that. They get money. And now this goddess, Aphrodite, is, is appeased. So doing sexual immoral, immoral things in the name of a god. So you can see just how, how powerful that would be. Um, think about even our own culture. Like We haven't moved quite to that part point where, where like um, cities have temples that are up where you can go and participate in those type things and it be looked at as a religious ritual, right? I mean, it might be happening behind the scenes, but it's not like advertised on Facebook. And so all kinds of crazy things going on in Corinth. The prosperous living, industry, unlimited business opportunities, commerce, trades, travel, tourism. There was upward mobility for people from other places who were not able just to have money of their own because back, remember, in those days, you could have come with whatever your grandma and whatever your dad did. That's what you did, right? And you didn't just jump to a classism like, hey, I'm going to go to college now and just just move up about three tiers. Um, So this was a place that you could do that. Um, And so some, some prosperous um, opportunities in all those arenas. Also, just the, the comfortable living, the, the foods, um, the, the Mediterranean seafood, the rich gardens, wonderful weather, beautiful coastal and mountainous scenery, art, music, culture. So this is an incredible city. Um, people have been living this for a long time. It's a great place to sink the idol of comfort. And then also just those new philosophies, education, learning. There was religious pluralism, which meant that there was all kinds of different temples, false deities. Um, there was idolatry. Um, there were these healing temples. Um, there were these places of spiritual renewal, but not what we think of a spiritual renewal. And in the middle of that, there's this little Jewish temple. And that's where Paul would have this church planted. So this, this Jewish temple that has been there also, and that's where they planted this first church. So... Um, so much greed and selfish ambition. Ambitious entrepreneurs could seize the opportunities to advance, live different lives than they had before. It was a true pull-up-your-bootstraps mentality. All the his- historians write about all these people that would come into those port-, port cities and see it as this great new opportunity. Think of it as an early New York. Um, what a great opportunity. And now if you just get after it and, and start working hard, pull up your bootstraps, you can become as big a success as you want. And so um, just the, the greed and selfishness that can come of that. Not, is that bad to start a business and, and, and make money? No. It is if it becomes the idol and then you're able to compromise and marginalize other people because of that, just like in our own system. Um, false gods, idolatry, um, all those things. Uh, there was, there was false um, gods. There was the Greek gods that they worshipped, Apollo, Hermes, Venus, Poseidon, um, Asclepios was the, the god of healing. Um, but then in the middle of that, here's a new church plant. In the middle of all those different temples, all those different religions, all those false gods. Um, so we have, we, we have and we see this incredible opportunity for pride, 
for materialism, for, for self-seeking, that are destructive vices, um, when instead it was God's grace that created this beautiful place. It was God's grace that created these opportunities that, that, that could have been used for good. Um, so that's where we would um, look at this picture of Corinth and understand a little bit more about their, back, their background, um, the context, their culture. And in that culture, why would God send his holy gospel? Why would he send his people to a city just full of filth and greed and idolatry, licentiousness, and then also really good moral religious people of other religions maybe? Why would God send his gospel to a city filled with so much just, just seemingly chaos? Well, as you find out, if you know a little bit about the story in 1 Corinthians, um, God plants this church there, and this church brings all of that into the church. So they bring all of their baggage from their own idolatrous hearts, their backgrounds, could have been um, any one of those categories I just mentioned, whether it's the licentious living, the, whether it's the, the prosperous living, whether it's the philosophical living, whether it's the, the, the comforts, and we all bring all those into the church. And so the founding of, of, of the church in Corinth is actually in Acts chapter 18. So um, you can turn there and read later. Um, but Acts chapter 18 shows that, it's, that Aquila and Priscilla are there. Paul's there. Timothy and Silas were either there at the same time. And, and as Paul traveled through there, um, that's when the church was planted. So they have some people that become believers. Um, and the initial time of the, the, the original time that Paul got there was about 50 or 51 A.D. Um, so think about this. This is like 20 years after Christ has gone and ascended to heaven. It's 20 years later. Um, this city that we just talked about, and, and now they established the church for over a year and a half. Over 18 months, Paul and his team is there. And it's just a small church um, going on. And so um, Paul then leaves Corinth and travels to Ephesus. And then he's in Ephesus for a little while, and then he goes to, back to Jerusalem. And then when he comes back to Ephesus, he had heard about what was going on in Corinth. So they're there for a year and a half. And the church is being planted slowly. And then they travel off to Ephesus, then to Jerusalem, back to Ephesus. They get word of what's going on. There was actually three to four letters to the Corinthians that was written. Uh, we've lost a couple of them. But the first and second Corinthians are the letters that we have. And so, and, and in that, don't feel like, oh, man, did we, is some, some magic part of God's word missing? No, that, that's not. There's tons of letters. If you understand, uh, so many letters by even other apostles were written that were not con considered part of God's word. Um, and so um, as the church is planted, all these things begin to pop up. And, and man, if you you see that 1 Corinthians is written in like 54, so it's three to four years later. This is written in 55. This is uh, 55 AD. This is four to five years later. And, and if, you, if you read a lot of books, and if you're around certain crowds, um, you just have to look not only at Jesus, but as Paul, as a pretty big failure as far as the church goes. Um, there were, um, first of all, they're, they're using a rented space. They're, they're meeting in the synagogue, and then meeting in people's homes. They don't have a building. They don't have a church building. Four or five years in, they don't have a building. Um, there's no missions team that's mentioned. They consider themselves, we are all the mission team here. We are the mission team. 
We're, we're local missionaries getting the gospel to the people around us. We're also the ones going to be sent. Um, there's no kids ministry or events mentioned in on the two letters that we have. Um, it's four to five years in. And there's still no plurality of elders, no deacons mentioned. Uh, there, there's not a, a very pointed clarity of mission statement or vision statement. Um, they were a mess filled with sin, and yet look what God's doing. Out of all the different churches that are all over, God sends this letter of love to them to go, I, I see what all you're dealing with. I see how you're living. I see all of your sin, and I'm pursuing you. I'm still coming after you. Um, I bring that up because um, we, we deal with this all the time where, where people are, have, have different views of what, what the church is supposed to be and what we're supposed to be doing and all these things. And they have these measurements and time, time limits on, well, here, I, I just thought this, and I just thought this, and I just thought this. I want you just to think through. Remember, the church is this people. It's the people around you. And the church has a mission of trying to bring more people into the reconciliation with God. And so um, we have models around us that, that have from A to Z. It doesn't necessarily mean that all of those letters were what God desired or designed, but it could be just a lot of filler sometimes. And so think through, um, Paul's dealing with some very difficult things in this church, and God is loving them. Here's some of the major immaturity issues that, they're, that things are going on. So you get this from 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. He literally just says in 1 Corinthians on many places, and to, to speak now to this issue that you guys are dealing with. And let's move on to this issue that you guys asked me about. And let's move on to this issue that you guys are dealing with. He just goes on in these categories. So here's some of the major immaturity issues. First of all, divisions between ethnicities, spiritual elites who base it off their gifts or their, their wealth. Um, they, they had classes of the wealthy and the middle class and the poor. Um, there was influence. They valued powerful, noble, rich, wise people. So, so the winners... They despised the lowly and the poor. They seated them in the back. And here comes a wealthy guy, and they would usher them to the front. Because if people see this guy here, and this family here, and these people here, then they'll want to be here. So they, they treated the poor pitifully. So they, they based all this off of class. There was incest going. A man with his uh, father's wife, and it's known about and everyone knows it and sees it, and it's going on for months and months and months, and they're letting it go on. Other types of sexual immorality, running rampant, lawsuits against each other, small little group of people, not lawsuits against people out there, lawsuits against people inside the church. Disruptive worship services, all kinds of things going on, and, and, and all kinds of views of what's right, what's wrong, what's right, what's wrong. Spiritual elites who are marginalizing others based on um, their spiritual gifts or their eloquence. They, it seems like they had different speakers because Paul's addressing this, these different speakers. Some come in, and so it's a philosophical center. And so at those times, they would have these marketplaces where people would gather, and they would, people have just be, would be standing out there just um, teaching new philosophies, new education, new um, uh, preaching-type styles. And so some were very eloquent with their words. So just what... Um, um, Actually, what um, um, Sujin had read earlier, that's why in 1 Corinthians, the first book, when, when Paul goes into chapter 2, what Sujin read earlier, he says this, And I, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God 
with lofty speech or wisdom, even though that's exactly what you treasure. Paul was a small, broken man. We'll learn later on of all the things he'd gone through, and they, they were thinking, this? This is this guy with all the influence that everyone's listening to? Look at him. Every time he pulls up in a ship, we hear about all the stuff that he's been through. God could not be on this guy's side. Do you hear how horrible his life is? If God were for them, he would look like his life would be successful looking. That's what we value. And so Paul's saying, when I came to you, I didn't share those things with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, as opposed to these other voices that look really good and sound really good and tell you exactly what you want to hear and are echo chambers for what your heart already desires. You want to grow a church in America? Just create an echo chamber of what people want to hear. And my speech and my message were, were not implausible words of wisdom, but in a demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So I want to pause for a second um, just to tell you guys, I wish more of our people were here. Uh, they're probably going to miss it, and I'll never say it to them. I'm not a great encourager, but um, I wanted to commend you guys, truly. And that's, I'm not saying this... Um, you have your flaws and failures. You guys all have tons of sin. Um, but I wanted to just truly, just a word from a, a shepherd, someone who cares, um, to commend you on your treatment of others. Because this, we live in this type of culture. We live in this type of setting. We live in an area where even to, to create a church, there's this expectation of what that looks like and what you should be doing. But here's what I've seen. I, I even, I'll even give it to you that I, I would say we're probably nine out of ten of us are probably older brother types um, who are falling in love with grace. Who just smell the aroma of grace and because of the way that you know that you're bent, like that, that's, that's what I want. And that smell, that, that's Jesus. That's all it is. It's nothing about Sojourn Church. It's definitely not about us. It's definitely not anyone our great. It's Jesus. And it is. That's what I, that's what I thought this was going to be like. That's, that's what I thought Christianity was going to be like. And we want it. And I've seen people acting in much, much grace over the last three or four years. So we've had, um, and what I mean by this is I've seen people of all ethnicities of all social economic classes, high, middle, very low, people from all sorts of different lifestyles, different identities, different church backgrounds, um, relational, um, um, yeah, I'm sorry, religious affiliations, all the different church options, from extreme charismania to extreme high church intellectualism, Intellectualism from, from people of humble placement and people of extremely arrogant, prideful attitudes. And I've seen you, the people, love them well. Stories of small groups. People throw their crap out on the table. Probably expected to get hammered and thrown out. Instead, six months later, every week, 
women are having them over, talking to them, engaging with them, loving them while patiently learning their stories before jumping to judgment or conclusions, knowing if, if you are an older brother type, it's hard because as soon as you hear them throw out what church they're from or what they believe or what, what they live like, it's like, oh gosh, bells are going off in our head, but I've seen you respond in grace and mercy. That is godly love and grace. That is steps of maturity. That is DNA. And that's why we've tried not to just add or attract a hundred extra people if we're not going to treat them with love and grace in the front end. Why would we add a hundred people in here and all high-five each other because there's more people, but we don't give a rip about them. And we don't understand grace and truth. And we don't love people well. Why would God want another one of those buildings going? So I want to commend you guys. We, we don't get any trophies. No one knows us. Even here at Metro, you know, people are like, oh, and, you know, they'll, they'll run into us. And they're, oh, oh, you are the ones that meet there? That's a weird name. What does that mean? And so you don't get any trophies for that. But I'm telling you that, that, that that's the path we're on. That's the journey. It's not about how big it gets or how influential. That, that's grace. God is working. It's those things that are unseen that Paul talks about in this book. And so I wanted to bring that out to you guys um, just so you'd know that. Um, Think about this church, all those things that, that's going on in Corinthian church. Bad marriages, bad single issues, food offered to idols. Do we eat it or not? Head coverings for men and women. So can you imagine visiting or going to that church? Would you go to that church? If you heard one of those things was going on, we would probably check out, right? I would suggest that God would want you right in the middle of that church. That God would go, no, no, that, that's where I want you. I'm speaking to this church. There's lots of little things. I'm not even speaking to those. And they're going to be covered by but I'm speaking specifically to this one. And I think it's because of all the muck and the craziness that God's going, I want to show you that love and my gospel wins out over all those things. That when I am the treasure that gets exalted and people stare and gaze at me, which I believe is part of the focal point of this book, that love wins out and not in the way that whatever that author was. But the true love and grace to people, that's what he's wanting to do in a crazy city. You come with your background of false, uh, false idolatry. You come with your background of being a, a temple um, prostitute. You come with your background of being this wealthy, arrogant jerk because of how much money that you're making and you trample on people for your own success. Um, you, you come with all of these backgrounds and, and you surrender it at the cross. That's what this is for. This is why he's doing this in Corinth. Can you imagine in our day, someone you know, just saying you know, around your workplace, around your family, hey, hey, we found this church that we started going to. Um, it's little, but um, it's only a few years old, but man, we love it. Oh, oh really? So where is it? We, we might check it out. What's it like? Uh, they've got something for everybody. There's fights over clothing and hats and whether women should wear head coverings or not or whether men should cut their hair. Um, um, for, for the richer people, they really despise and separate from the poor. There's a whole area that we send the poor to. Several of the families are um, in lawsuits against each other, um, probably over the, the clothing that they wear and stuff like that. It's some of the most scary marriages I've ever seen. I mean, these people fight and separate and fight. And then to come to find out, there's some of those couples that are hooking up with different people. There's even a couple of people who are 
uh, they're even um, being with their 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 parents. They're they're getting with their parents in inappropriate ways. Um, and then also, interestingly, in the worship services, it's a mess. Like the people who think that you must speak in tongues, they get this kind of elevated area, and they look down on all the people who can't speak in tongues. Imagine a place like that. And so a few of them are sleeping with their parents' spouses, along with a lot of other immorality. And the people kind of have all these clicks of who they hang out with, who they like and they don't like. It's great. We love it. Sounds great. When can we go? And in this broken, sin-saturated, selfish, idolatrous community, God says, there, that's, that's my church. That's what I want to work with. I slaughtered my son for those people. I mean, if you knew the conversations that I get to have with people who have incredible knowledge of the Word and look at themselves as the most mature, and hey, I, I was just wondering, why aren't we doing this? Or why aren't you doing that? Or, or shouldn't you just do this? Here's what I think you should do. And you go, are you kidding me? You wouldn't have made it in the Corinth church. Just, just one issue that they had. We don't have many of those things. But you still got problems and complaints. In the middle of this broken, sin-saturated, selfish, idolatrous community, God sends the gospel of Christ and expects the church to flourish and multiply disciples and survive. We've got people in a, in a consumeristic culture that are coming. They're bringing their baggage of consumeristic American church culture, and they want to come in and think that, um, hey, here's my expectations. Meet my needs, or I'll give you ultimatums. And you're proving that you're the ultimate consumer. You're the ultimate older brother type. You're the ultimate immature person that other people are putting up with six months of just being graceful because of your attitude. You're, you're the weaker brother in every situation, yet you think you're the most mature. And so that's why I was wanting to commend you guys earlier. So I hope that you see this is a crazy, crazy situation that God sends his gospel and God actually believes this is what's going to happen there that my gospel is going to spread and flourish and it's going to go forth and I am going to do what my plan, my redemptive plan has, has pursued. I am going to accomplish what I wanted. In the um, main thrust of the book, I would say, there's some things that I want us to see just real quickly in closing. Um, one of the biggest things is this idea of new covenant identity in Christ. And so in 2 Corinthians 3, 4, and 5, and so I don't have these slides, but um, I have these three motifs so first of all, just Christ and his gospel is our true treasure. Gazing and captivation in him is salvation. So Christ and his gospel is our true treasure. Gazing at him, being captivated in him is where you find salvation. God's paradigm is not our own. God weakness in us to show forth his own glory and power. So Paul is dealing with people who are basing value and basing prominence off of how good people look, how, how, how wealthy they are, their status, their, their eloquence in the church, these, these speakers that were coming, and they're looking at Paul as this broken man, seemingly just like, man, he is just under the thumb of God's curse. Every time he turns around, he's shipwrecked, he's getting beaten down. Obviously, God couldn't be with this guy. And Paul's going, you, did you not understand Jesus? 
identification with Jesus of the cross means that would be what life would be like. Weakness, which in turn leads to life and salvation for others. That's the third one there. So I want to read this little section here. So this is kind of the crux of this. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Um, let me go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3 first, the last couple of verses there. So he's building this argument. And then 2 Corinthians 3 at the very end, chapter 3 is all about the new covenant. Um, and then at the end says, Yes, to this day when Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is Spirit, capital S, so he's talking about the Holy Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face as opposed to those who are shrouded in darkness, beholding the glory of the Lord. Beholding the glory. Paused, halted, staring, gazing. Those who are beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image. If you're beholding Christ, pausing, halting, Focus, studying, looking to, crying out for, resting in Christ, you're being transformed. If you're not doing that, you're not being transformed. And Paul's going, that's where you guys have missed it. You're listening to other voices that are saying, this is it. Three quick ways to raise really godly teenagers. Five points for the perfect godly marriage. There's, there's no five points. There's no three quick ways for teenagers. Three prosperous steps uh, for, for a downfall economy. Let me give you a couple of Psalms or Proverbs. That's not what it's about. That's about you being the God. You're the idol. How do I have more success? How do I feel more comforted by my wife? How do I feel more uh, respected by my children? How do I impress people by how my kids turn out so they can all look at me? You're the God in that. You're the God in that. You're the God in that. That's not staring and gazing at Christ and being amazed at him and beholding him and being transformed into what? Into something impressive? Into the same image of him, becoming more Christ-like. So based off of that, then he goes into chapter 4, based on what he just said in 3, in verse 3 there. So then in chapter 4, the start says, Therefore, therefore, based off of what I've just built this message on, you Corinthians, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. So we've got some God's sovereignty on there also. And man's response, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. I just talked about this staring at Paul saying, I just talked about this staring at something, the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord. Sounds like these other people were proclaiming something else, doesn't it? Another gospel, another Jesus. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God said, let light shine out of darkness. Look at you. Pitiful mess. And light comes out of darkness. And it has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Right back to 3.18, staring, gazing at the face of Christ. And then through 7 through 12, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. So these people are going, oh, 
little jars of clay. We've seen those little stick figures, the little clay things hanging in that one temple. Thousands of little pieces of clay hanging on string that people thought that was what that was like. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Because this does not make sense unless there was another reality taking place. Because you're looking at us as weak and frail, and in fact, we're the ones bringing the gospel to you. And you don't trust our word, you're listening to other voices. And you're esteeming people on worldly things. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. We're struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. There's your tagline for the Christian life. Tulsa, billboards, win, win, win. Billboard, we win with Jesus. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. So that, oh, maybe it ends out really, really good for me in the body. So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. So that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. More of his image. Conformed into his image. Transformed into someone in his image. So death is at work in us, but life is being produced in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also spoke. So as the gospel came to us, we responded to it, we believed, and we speak that same gospel associated with Christ and his suffering and his weakness, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. There's what you get carrying around with you the death in the body. But the end reward is you get God himself. He's going to revive us to new life, bring us with you into his presence. There's Paul's reward. There's Paul's end goal. We get God himself, his presence, for it is all for your sake so that as grace extends to more and more people, the gospel's going forth to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving and worship to the glory of God. That's what your life's about. God's design was grace to us in the humiliating cross of Christ. And Paul's going, that's what you should be identifying with. Not marginalizing people who are different from you, who have different backgrounds, who have different weaknesses, and even their sin. And you're separating from them thinking you're holier or better. God's design was grace to us in the humiliating cross of Christ. It's God's tool to give us what God believes is the greatest gift he could possibly give us, himself. We get God as our joy and worship object, and others get God as their joy and worship object, and God receives worship and honor and glory. That's what I said. So it may increase. So that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving and the glory of God. And so then verse 16 says, so we do not lose heart. Because, listen, you are going to be tempted always to lose heart. This following Jesus is set up to be a costly path where losing heart would be expected. But what if we change the message and just tell people, no, 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 it's all good. It's just all good. It's your best life now. It's it's always going to be good. It's just more blessing. God is obligated to heal you immediately. God is obligated to give you prosperity. 
Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed. David, how how does it happen? Gazing, beholding the glory of the Lord, I'm being transformed. So today I'll go good. Maybe not. Maybe it's worse. The next day, Tuesday, is it it better? Don't know. Are you still gazing and beholding? You're being transformed. Well, well, that means I get more a better job, better pay. My kids are healthy. Maybe not. Are you still beholding? You still trusting? You still resting in Him? So, for in this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So for the Corinthian church, for Sojourn Church, stop looking to the world's idea and picture of success, quick produced results. Stop looking to worldly models to measure as God's work. We don't have to look to those things. We can see, hey, is God doing a work in us? Are we being transformed into his image? Look to the things God has expressed to us as the fruits to look for. And Paul was saying, you've missed it. And in the next section, he's like, you missed it. This was what was the point of the gospel. So in closing, I just want to turn back to those that last um, questions, the first questions I mentioned at the beginning. Um, how can I be captivated by the Jesus of the cross when I'm obsessed with pride and self-seeking and comfort? So just think through those. Those are huge gods for me, huge gods for maybe you. Huge gods for people around us. And what implications does that truth, that reality have on me loving Christ and making him known? If I'm obsessed with pride, what do people think of me? What do people think of me? Are they impressed? Are they liking me? Are they accepting me? Self-seeking. My decisions are based on us winning, winning, winning. I won't do anything that would be sacrificial. I wouldn't do anything where it's not a benefit immediately to me. And then just that drink is such comfort. My goals are to do A, B, and C so I can be more relaxed, more comfortable, more whatever, fill in the blank. And Paul's going, that, that's, none of that is the gospel. It's about the crucified Christ and you being captivated in him. That's what your life's about as a follower. And man, aren't there a majority of different voices out there that this is what Christianity is and they present a different image? It doesn't mean, and in that, I'm not saying I always have to go back and say, I'll get emails or people like, are you saying we should never be blessed, you know, hashtag blessed, uh, or are you saying that we should never have, you know, no, 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 I'm not saying, and you, you may have a business that just kills it. You may, you may fall backwards into money. That doesn't mean that you're just pursuing it. It doesn't mean that you're just pursuing worldliness or just pursuing prosperity. It may be that that's part of the design, but I'm telling you, you are going to have rough times. And you are going to have difficulty. And if you're following Christ, there's going to be some suffering and some persecution that comes with it. And, and be careful if, if you are just falling into all those things that, that, that the only people that you ever associate with or hang out with are the people who are just like you and being despised and disgusted by people who are different, whether that's their parenting style or whether that's uh, their clothing or the neighborhood they live in or the house they live in, whatever it is. We can't be separated in that way. And God says, I can do a work in a people that are so diverse. That's a picture of the gospel of Christ and his cross. I can transform people and bring them together in that kind of unity.
So what implications does the gospel and Christ's lordship have on our lives as we engage with a culture that is either, number one, part of a booming success or part of the marginalized poor? And that's right where we're standing. Part of booming success right this way or part of marginalized poor. What implications would the gospel have on a place like this? If we, if we tapped into that, we rest in that. Let me break it down.